0: You're listening to the Hazard Ground
1: Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host,
0: Mark Zeno.
1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Our normal announcements before we get started with this week's guest, who by the way, has a very unique distinction as a female in the military. We'll get to her coming up in just a few moments. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Help us grow the Hazard Ground community. Tell a friend to follow us there as well. We put out a lot of great information each week about the guests and about the shows any upcoming events and, and news that we have. So follow us on social media as well. Please make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel, all of our podcasts are in video form on our youtube channel give a thumbs up to all the content there leave some comments we love to hear and read what you guys think and uh, get the interaction going so we certainly appreciate it that, that as well speaking of the interaction need some more amazon i'm sorry apple reviews rather we'll get to amazon in a minute apple reviews give us five stars tell us why you love the show that'll help grow this podcast as well trying to climb those charts into uh one of the top 100 apple podcasts out there so Go to Apple, again, doesn't have to be a lengthy review, uh, just a couple of great words, why you love the show, give us a thumbs up and uh, five stars and a like and all that stuff, and we'll certainly uh, uh, put them on social media when we get them, and we appreciate you guys doing that as well. Our promotion with Amazon, you can go to our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab, it'll redirect you to Amazon, we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here. On the hazard ground. So you guys have heard me tell you this before. It's a great way as you get towards the holidays. Uh, If you're going to do some holiday shopping on Amazon, just go to hazardground.com first, and you'll be able to support veterans uh, anywhere across the country just by going to hazardground.com. All right, this week's guest is a former West Point uh, graduate and Army officer. She spent eight years total on active duty in the military, just a little bit over eight years, and has the unique distinction of being the first black female in field artillery to hold a tactical signal officer role and deploy in that role in combat. She did it twice, as a matter of fact, to Iraq two times. She currently serves as a political appointee under President Biden to lead AmeriCorps in its strategic commitment to support the wounded warrior veteran and military family community. She is Mary Tobin joining us here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Mary, welcome and thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This is great.
1: Yes, it is. And it's great. Uh, full disclosure to the audience. You and I met actually uh, in the owner's suite at the Falcons game um, the the Falcons owner is very you know, pro-military, and he had a bunch of veterans and people who work with veteran relating causes like myself and Mary uh, in, into the owner's suite during a Falcons game. So it was nice. We got to dine on some good food and, and have some fancy beverages and enjoy a football game, but uh, it was great to connect. And Garrett Cathcart, a mutual friend of both of ours, a mutual colleague, uh, of both of ours. Uh, great, great individual, former guest here on the show, connected you and I, and he said immediately, Mary needs to be on the hazard ground. And so here you are. Welcome. Uh, it's great to talk to you. And, and certainly, again, great to get to know you.
0: Absolutely. I think the icing on the cake is that my Falcons won. <laughs> so that's really all that matters at the end of the day, uh, because I love I love the team. I love my city. And I'm, I am always appreciative of how much um, the whole Falcons family, Atlanta United family, supports uh, veterans. Um, it makes it easier to fight for your country, right? When you have the home team cheering you on, and and I literally every deployment would have like a Falcons flag up in my oh, trailer. You were you that person. You were
1: that person with the big flag <laughs> out there and repping it out there, and, and yeah,
0: I, I never. Did I'm that. diehard. I'm well, diehard. Good. When I'm the old lady at. What, 75, 80 years old, you know, when we finally win the Super Bowl, you know, wheel me out into the <laughs> field and, you know, everybody's going to be cheering for me because, yeah, I'm diehard. Uh, <laughs> I'm
1: glad you said it's going to take another, you know, 40 years before that happens. Uh, but that's the whole different conversation. All right, uh right. Let's rewind several years and go back to uh, how you ended up at West Point and in the Army. Was West Point always something that you wanted to do?
0: absolutely not. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you know I I'm, I'm from Atlanta, hence why I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan. Um and I'm from the southwest side of Atlanta and is if anything about Atlanta I'm kind of going through a lot of changes, but you know I I grew up initially in poverty. Um but what's interesting about my story is I'm the child of a civil rights activist, uh a professor of education. And so I grew up hearing all these stories about John Lewis, Martin Luther King, and you know, being very proud to be black and what that means, right? In terms of, hey, all these people uh struggled for you and sacrificed for you, so now you got to do great things, okay? With that being said, my mother groomed me to go to Spelman College, which is one of the most historic all black. Uh, institutions for women. And, and that is like where you go when you're from Atlanta, a black woman. So that's where I was going to be a biochemist. And I get thrown in a JRTC when I was in high school, my sophomore year. I'm like, what is this? Come home, sign a waiver, just get me out of the class. And my mother, who had um, recently married my stepfather, who I would find out is a Korean War veteran, he had decided that it was a good idea to stay in JROTC <laughs> um, and I wound up staying in JRTC. and the head of JRTC was this gentleman um, by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Nicholas J. Burke, um, white guy, silver hair, stony blue eyes, Vietnam veteran who had said constantly that the greatest leaders he met in the army were black men who didn't have any access to becoming officers so when he got out of the army he decided to go into urban schools and expose black kids to the opportunities that the military held um he put a uniform on me told me all i had to do was make sure it was straight and i get to tell people what to do i took and um And then slowly but surely, he started to expose me to the military academies. And he said, Mary, if you do this thing, you'll make a four-year decision that will change the rest of your life. And I did. And I got into uh, the Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, and West Point, and I
1: That's amazing. Uh, That's that's incredible. You know, when you think back to this individual who came into your school, um, you know, I'm sure your first reaction to seeing the person was probably a little bit, you know, standoffish or at least, you know, reserved back when 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 you started to hear the whole spiel. um, Was it something that you were still skeptical of? Did you buy in immediately or or were were you still, you know, looking at it as a white guy in a black neighborhood in a black school trying to tell black kids what to do with their future, or were you kind of just buying into what he was selling immediately?
0: Uh, It was the first one. Um, I mean, you know, historically Martin Luther King was anti-military complex. So not anti-veteran, but like, no, we don't need to go to focus on love. And, and so I grew up with the idea that the military was not the answer um, and that the military has had historically sent a lot of black men into war to be killed. Like the rhetoric was constant. And so for me, hearing that from him, um, I had to reshape how I thought about it. And I thought to myself, listen, my parents can't afford to send me to college. This seems to be one of the best schools in the country. I don't know um and everybody's telling me i have the potential to do great i'll try it out and i think for me it was more about becoming um in the country and being and so being in the military was secondary to me it was just like okay there are presidents that come out of this school ceos that come out of this school clearly this is a good school let me just go get this free education and see Um, you know, what will happen. And I think, of course, uh, everything changed for me in my junior year when 9-11 happened. So it it went from, okay, sounds good, free school. I get to be a president one day. Oh, wait, no, I'm actually training to be an officer.
1: All right, so you're getting set to be an officer. You have all this sort of fervor and excitement and everything else, which I think is great. Uh, But you did mention 9-11 happens uh, and that is a dramatic shift not only for you know uh, people who chose to serve, but obviously a dramatic shift in where your head is about the decision that you made. So did you have, at that point in time, you're halfway through this West Point experience, are you now thinking you made a bad decision? Did you want out? Did you try to reverse course? How did you react?
0: You know what's so interesting about uh, that particular question and about 9 at the time was, you know, I, I think I had a complete awareness that I was in this elite school designed to train me to be a leader of men and women, right, our nation's sons and, and daughters. But up until then, it was just kind of like, okay, th- this will be a part of the career. I'll get to go cool places, Korea, Germany. Um, I might go to Bosnia. I might train in South America. Um, but at the end of the day, it never entered into my mind that war was a possibility. Crazy, because we literally study war every single year West Point. So I knew how to be an officer at war, but it, it hadn't really clicked. 9-11 happens and I think one of the most, uh, and it stays with me till to this day, You know, West Point is about 50-ish miles uh, outside of the city. Right. And right. so you could actually go up to the top of my barracks, um, Pershing barracks, and I could see the smoke bill- billowing up from the city. And there was also um, a, now a friend of mine by the name of Joe Quinn who lost his brother. Yep. And I'm sure you've, you know Joe. Joe is a well. former guest
1: here on the show. Yeah.
0: Um, and I, could, I can recall people talking about him and that kind of last interaction with his brother and what his brother meant to him. I think for me, and then seeing um, the story, story after story of folks who lost their family members, the firefighters, the police officers who were going in knowing they weren't coming back out. It, it kind of makes me emotional because I think that's what clicked for me is that when I put on this uniform, it was in fact for a purpose greater than myself. Right. And then, if there weren't people willing to do that, right, to serve, to fight, and even to die um, for each other, then um, what is this whole American experience or experiment even for? And I, so for me, that clicked, and all of a sudden, I became patriotic. And this person who was just focused on school, um, you know, focused on having a great experience, and even so, even more focused on making my mama proud because of the sacrifices she made for me in her life. And now it became, you know what, I want to make my country proud. And I got to tell you, Mark, that was not as well received in, in, in my community. It was like, wait, 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 we get it, get a free education, man. But what do you mean you love America? Have you not seen our history with this country? Right. Like, how is it that it shifted? And I think just being a part of a group of folks in an organization where we're like, nope we're going to fight for each other. That really, really stuck with me. And, um, and so that's where that shift happened.
1: Yeah. And and again, you know, it was, I I mean, I had a similar sort of experience, you know, I, I did, I signed up for ROTC prior to 9-11, you know, commissioned, uh, prior to 9-11 and then 9-11 happens. And it's like, you know, in the whole process going into it, I remember being, you know, pre-college and having that conversation with my parents when they were trying to convince me, you know, my mother, my stepfather to do, to do ROTC. I'm like, yeah, what about going to war? Like, I don't want to go to war, you know, as a 17 year old kid. And they're like, ah, it's peacetime. Nothing's going to happen. You're fine. Do four years, get out. It's like famous last words. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly understand that, that sort of mental shift and that, you know, dramatic turn that you have to make. Um, all right. So when you graduate West point and I just to fast forward a little bit, you know, obviously you stay the course and you graduate from West point, uh, you're going to go into the signal corps. Is that what you wanted to do?
0: Yeah. So remember that shift. I um, at the time, women could not officially go into combat arms. Right. Now there were there were women who happened on it right um, beforehand. There were women who were in air defense artillery um, prior to to them. But in terms of being allowed to branch into combat arms, we were not. And I I I, I remember sophomore year. We're doing a lot of training exercises, being exposed to all the branches. We go to Fort Knox. I get in a tank. I'm like, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. You know, I'm like yelling at the gunner. And then I get back to school. And then we start talking about our branches. I'm going armor. I'm being a tanker. Oh, man, you can't be a tanker. It broke my heart. So my thought process was get into a branch where I can almost guarantee that I will always be with the ground pounders, the door Um, That was my plan. And, and, and so I branched signal. I was one of two women in my class who branched signal. Um, And I was the only black uh, person who, who branched signal period. And I was like, yes, my plan is working perfectly. You know, this is what I got to stand out. And I don't wanna go to a traditional signal unit. I want to be with combat arms. Well, six months after I graduated, I graduated on May 31st, 2003. By January 1st, 2004, I was in Baghdad, Iraq and with a field artillery unit. So I got my wish and there were, I mean, I was literally completing officer basic course at Fort Gordon and two weeks away from graduation, my TAC officer gets a call and is like, "Hey." We need her at Fort Sill. Now she needs to go home, kiss her mom, drive out to Fort Sill, because she needs to go to two weeks of training in Fort Hood, and she's got to be on a plane with her unit um, so that she can be in Baghdad, Iraq, by January 1st. So it I was one of – I want to say one, or the first or the second person out of my class to deploy um, right after graduate. I mean, it was fast. I grew up really, really fast.
1: What, uh, what was that conversation like when you went home and told – the, the parents and the family that, uh, yeah, uh, by the way, I'm leaving and I'm getting on a plane going to Iraq. How, how did that go over?
0: Yeah, uh, it went over like, uh, I don't know. Spartan um, church, huh? Eh? Yeah, bad, <laughs> bad, bad macaroni and cheese in a black house on Thanksgiving. I it,
1: my you know, be, <laughs> Hold on a second. Being in the South for as long as I have, I actually understand that reference now. OK, uh, yes. so, yeah, you know I, macaroni and cheese is like a damn religion in the South, man. Like where I come from <laughs> in Italy, macaroni and cheese is called Alfredo. So, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but it, it's, you know, different strokes, different folks, whatever.
0: Oh, no. When I finally brought my macaroni, when it was accepted as like a burnt offering to Thanksgiving yeah. a few years ago and everyone blessed it. It was like, huh? Oh, yes, I am now a full member of my family. But yeah, my mother cried, uh, you know, she tried to figure out ways to get me out of it. I mean, literally tried calling my, the, like Fort Sill, the commander. Oh, I mean, yeah,
1: that always goes the way.
0: <laughs> like, mine doesn't work that way. Yeah. In fact, you're probably making it worse.
1: My um, mom says, well, why can't they send somebody else?
0: <laughs> right. But oh, you, absolutely. There are a um, lot of
1: somebody else's. Yeah,
0: we're all going. <laughs> absolutely. I was like, yeah, me and all the somebody else's are going together. Um, my, my stepfather, who I told you was a Korean war veteran, you know, he just locked in, you know, just keep your head on the swivel, take care of your men, you know, just very much like, nope. I know you're scared, but I don't care. Let's lock in. Let me tell you what war is about. And he had never spoken about his time in war ever. Um, and so all of a sudden he's opening up and my mom's looking at him like, I didn't know this about you. And now everything he's saying makes sense. Um, and and I was scared out of my mind, and I don't care who says they weren't; they're lying. Um, I literally was just like a college student six months ago, and all of a sudden, I have literally fifty men, fifty grown men, one of which told me he definitely has socks older than me um, that I that has to listen to me and war. Man, um, so yeah, it definitely. It definitely changed everything for me. I grew up super fast.
1: All right. So when you get to Iraq, uh, do you fully understand your mission? Because, look, a- anybody who's been to the basic course, was it BOLIC for you or is it still OBC back then?
0: It still OBC. Okay, I'm good. Old, yeah, yeah, there we go. OBC.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, anybody who's been to the basic course knows that there is a wide gap between what you get at the basic course for training and what actually goes on on the ground. And some of that difference is made up by the elder statesmen in your unit, the elder NCOs who help close that gap for you, but you are not necessarily afforded the time to be able to do that and understand some of those things. So you're walking into this situation where not only do you have this awesome and incredible responsibility of the lives of your entire platoon, but you've got to get a real OJT, on the job training aspect here of learning what to do and what the difference is between what it says in a textbook and what actually is going to happen in combat. So kind of give me the, the backdrop, the mission, what you're supposed to be doing and how things initially kick off for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So initially the mission was, uh, I was in three core artillery. So we were going to be the higher headquarters for other units, subordinate commands of field artillery units, um, throughout Iraq, uh, particularly kind of like mid to Southern Iraq. So we weren't up in the, in the Northern parts of Iraq. Um, and we're just going to be higher headquarters directing and coordinating fires. And, and particularly my role was going to be ensure that uh, that the different units had the communications capabilities. Right. So I would then work with other signal units in the country to make sure, OK, we have a satellite here. We have a retrans there, you know, all those mm-hmm. things. But when we got into country, literally everything that I learned was thrown out the window except for my knowledge around what each equipment, what each piece of equipment was capable of. So I learned really quickly how to tell senior leaders, hey, that ain't going to work. And now here's, here's the other caveat to this. Once we get in the country, we are not just higher headquarters. We have a infantry unit out of Fort Raleigh, Kansas, that we are responsible for. We are—I di- I mean, they are—we are directly their higher headquarters. So now, we're not just a field artillery unit. We are higher command for this tactical unit, National Guard, who are now coming in to supplement um, work for the MPs, the military police officers, and a lot of the the, uh, the infantry units um, doing a lot of work right there in Baghdad. Right. So a lot of that work um, in and around the embassy and the airport. So we go from yes, we're just maps to no, now it's tactical stuff. we're watching um watching film and feed. Um, I'm in my truck now um, <laughs> with my guys, and we're on patrol and and so it shifted really quickly but in in addition, now I'm the g six as a second lieutenant, which is as you know, a colonel kind of star position, a full bird colonel position. And I'm the G1, I'm in charge of um, HR operations for all of these folks. So I'm having to ensure that I'm telling full bar colonels who are looking at me like, why are you even breathing right now at this table? Um, Hey, sir, if you put your unit there, that's not gonna work. You're not talking to anybody and your men are in danger. But also I'm staying up all night long, watching the list of casualties so that I can inform different units Of what's coming and helping walk units through that and soldiers through that really difficult process as a 23 year old second lieutenant I mean the pressure was on and I I couldn't help but thinking man that somebody has to be crazy like why are you putting that why are you giving me that responsibility that's how I grew up right like that's how I grew up really fast as a leader And that's why I'm pretty bold now with being able to look somebody dead in the eye, like no matter what level of authority and going, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, you know, we can do this your way or we can do this the right way, a way that will save lives. But, man, I got cussed out a lot, Mark. Um, I got told that my actions were the reason we were destroying relationships between Iraqi and American people. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, I got a chair thrown at me at one point across a a top. I mean, it was a whole thing uh, for sure. But I I did grow up really, really fast.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes. Second Lieutenant, Uh, you who knows nothing all of a sudden are the reason why the entire mission is falling apart. You got to love that. uh, That hard pivot from somebody uh, of higher rank. Always appreciate those folks. All right. um, So. In doing all this, obviously it's complex. You're probably overwhelmed, right? You're probably stressed, not wanting to do a bad job, not wanting to fail. Um, but at the same point in time, you know, is there any part of you that's like, you know, all those things that I said that people said I shouldn't do and shouldn't be and all those, all those reasons not to be here um, that people had told me along the way, I'm here and I'm doing this to the best of my ability and even succeeding at it. Um, Was there any sort of validation that you had made the right decision in any of those moments so that reflection doesn't come till later down the road?
0: No, I I think the the reflection began um, that that first deployment. And I think it started to make sense the second deployment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you see all the the war movies that, you know, where it's kind of like this pivotal, pivotal point where this leader decides to do the right thing even despite maybe what their leaders may want or see, right? Because sometimes it's, you're here and you're seeing things and you got this high-ranking person who's not there on the ground and they're trying to get you to make a call. And, and now you got to try to do the right thing for your guys. And in my case, it literally was always, always my guys. And I make that distinction because I didn't have women soldiers um, at the time. Right, And I think for me, what it was, West Point taught, you know, our tenants are duty honor country, and you know, we have the honor code, a cadet would not lie, she still know tolerate those who do. The toleration portion of it is sometimes the hardest, right? Because now you're not only monitoring yourself, but you're monitoring others to make sure that the culture of your unit is one of integrity and honor. I think what was happening for me, especially in that first deployment, things are moving so fast, things are so chaotic, young leaders are having to make decisions that are solely focused on honor and integrity. Like no one will know if you lie about this thing. No one know if, you know, you don't have the same, you don't have the bullet count or you went and got that cache of money and weapons and one weapon is missing or a couple hundred thousand dollars are gone. No one know if they send me out to a village to deliver $300,000 in cash. And we know that it probably won't be spent on what we expected to be spent on, but that's part of my mission. No one know if I take $50,000. So I think like those moments where I'm like, okay, now, nah, Mary, it's on you. And this is the difference. And it's leaders like this, all throughout history, all in the military, out of the military, who are making these good decisions, the right decisions over and over over again, and no one will ever know that's what makes this country great. That's what makes the military um, worth fighting in. Um, and and that's what makes humanity worth fighting for. And I'm now part of that. And my soldiers are seeing it. And now when it counts, you know, as my old mentor would say, army mentor would say, now you got men who will charge hell with an empty water pistol on your behalf. You know, I got old guys who said I wasn't initially going, man, you know what, LT, you're all right. You know, what do you think, ma'am? Now, nah, ma'am, not the LT. What do you think, ma'am? Right. Yeah. Whatever you say, ma'am, like we're going to go with you. So I saw myself earning the leadership because I actually believed in integrity and honor and people are following me and they're standing beside me, good or bad decisions, right? Just because I thought it was the right thing to do. And I'm like, you know what? I might be a damn good leader. Like, I might be all right. Like this leadership thing might be my jam. And, and that's when things really started to turn for me. Like, golly, it's not necessarily uniform. It's, it's like, will you do the right thing? Will you do the best that you can? Will you make sure you're prepared and will you support your men? And I, and I just, I got, I drank the Kool-Aid.
1: It's a seminal moment for any young leader, any young officer, and even young NCOs when you can literally not only you know, see the, or or feel the switch flip inside yourself to understanding, knowing, comprehending, being decisive, taking the initiative and knowing what the next next steps are in order to lead effectively, but also to watch those you choose to lead and those you are leading choose to follow you uh, and Mm. and watch them understand that I trust this individual. It's not about Mm. rank. It's not about position. It's not about any of that stuff. It's just about Trust brotherhood, sisterhood and and faith in and that really is where leadership at its core uh, is is found right I mean when you get to a point where it's it's not colonel and lieutenant, it's Mary and Mark, and we're just on the same team, working towards the same goal, and there is nothing stopping us there's no barriers between us um, and and so you know when you get to that spot, you really can feel it. There is, there is a momentum there that is tangible in leadership that you know uh, that you could ask these people to run through the gates of hell with yeah. three brick walls in front of them, and they'll do it without a hesitation, and you would do the same for them, but just understanding that everybody you know has that same sort of thought wave that, that is going at the same pace is, is so critical to being an effective leader. Uh, when you get there, it's, it really is a very rewarding feeling to say the least.
0: No feeling like it. No feeling like it, my guy no. Right. I, and just to circle back a little bit on that, I, as you were speaking, it reminded me of the moment where I realized that I did okay. earn okay. that trust. It was, you know, we were getting attacked. Is that? It was that first, you know, deployment. Um, we, you know, we our forces had captured Saddam Hussein. Well, we were still holding him; he hadn't gone to trial yet, and he was located right next to where, um, you know, my my operating base was. And so we got attacked a lot because his folks weren't happy with us. And remember, one day in the building we work at, working at, we need to reinforce the building. You know, sandbags have fallen. we need to reinforce the building. So, top comes in, first sergeant comes in. Hey, man, get out there and you know, re, you know, fill up the sandbags. Da da da. We need to reinforce it. All of that meant all my because t- all the men, the soldiers, were my soldiers. I was the only platoon leader there. And so they all leave the to talk and you know come back from mission and they're now outside. I mean, some of these guys are are on 18 hour, you know, shifts and they have still haven't slept and they're just filling a sandbag. I remember sitting there, I'm typing on my computer and it's air conditioning, and I'm sipping uh, you know, whatever I'm sipping that I got from the defect, and I'm going, something don't feel right. And so I get up, I go outside, I peek out the door and I see him. I was like, damn it. This is like those stories that I heard. Those like little, you know, stories you hear in West Point. Mm-hmm. And I, oh, now it's time for me to do it. I go back in, secure my weapon, take off my top, get my E-tool. That's back in the E-tool days, right? And I go outside, don't say anything. Just start shoveling sandbags, shoveling, you know, and passing them to the men. I can see them all look at me. At one point, first sergeant comes out. Ma'am, you don't have to do that. LT, go back inside. You you got work to do. I'm good, top. And I literally saw all my men that day. Um, I, it, I felt the shift. I felt the shift. And we stayed out there for oh, maybe six hours doing it. We were exhausted. After about an hour or two, now we're talking. We're laughing. Everybody's asking about me clowning me now, you know, making fun of me, all the things I'm making fun of them. I'm hearing about their wives, their girlfriends, their children, their mother, where they're from. And I think that that's where it shifted for me is because they knew that I was willing to sacrifice for them, even in a small way. And that, and then I earned their trust and I, and, and, and for, and truly that's when it changed for me. I was just like, no, I serve them. The, as they serve the country.
1: The price of leadership is self-sacrifice. Yes. And you could have stayed in the air conditioning, you could have typed away, you could have had a valid reason for doing a variety of other things that were necessary and needed. Yes. But self-sacrifice, go out there fill some sandbags and it goes an incredibly long long way. I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, you know, you mentioned a moment ago that you're looking at a casualty list and you're seeing what's going on and you have to deal the part of notifying people and everything else. For somebody who is scared to walk into combat naturally, which again, I was scared to, it's not, no one's afraid to say it or shouldn't be afraid to say it. That said, um, is there a part of you in the back of your head that is doing all this going, you know, uh, yeah, I don't want to end up on this list. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, this is more than I'm willing to handle at 23 years old.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it was the first time I saw one of my West Point classmates, oh wow on the casualty list and I saw it before my classmates were notified you know so we get you know notified via email and I saw that and I remember getting up from it was late at night I remember getting up from my desk and just you know put my gear on I just walked just went outside and walked and I was not okay because I'm like oh this is not that it wasn't real before, because I remember, you know, um, when I got in country and this is and I don't know if any other women who, you know, were in those early days, especially our MPs, our women who are MPs, who were in the thick of it early and often. Um, I had to fight to go on patrol with my guys. Right. The, and and I, I mean, I had to fight. And I remember, I, I mean, I got in a screaming match one day with my major my S3. I'm like, sir, these are my guys. They're on patrol. I'm preparing these missions. I need to be going out with them. And it came down to it. He said, Mary, and as we called me Mary, I was like, oh, this is real now. He goes, we are not ready to give a folded flag to your mother. I was like The guys are not ready. We, we've we not served with women before. We don't know how to do that. And And so... I had that screaming match the same week that my classmate, my first classmate um, was killed in action. And after that, I remember coming in the next day and I was like, I don't give a damn what you're ready for. This is what I signed up for. And I am not going to allow my men to keep going out of the wire um, with their leader, their Lieutenant still at the desk. I'm not doing that anymore. And so I, I literally had to, I, I, I remember him saying, you're not going anywhere. I put on a gear, I told my guys, mount up. And we just left. And I'm like, I am clearly being court martialed when I get back. Like, this is not going to go well. But damn it, if I'm going to go out, then let me go out, you know, hard, right? Go big or go home. And, um, you know, of, 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 of course, that, that wasn't just like bravado, like, let me get shot at just to say I got shot at. No, it was just like the sacrifice, knowing that my classmate, who had a wife, he got married right after West Point, was never coming home, and somebody was going to give him a folded flag, what made me any better? Like, I signed up to do the same thing, and, and if my if my sacrifice, if, if me dying, could possibly save one of my men's, my soldiers' lives, or it could make a mission go better so that ultimately we're helping the Iraqi people, like, to me, that was worth it. So that changed a lot for me too that I, I had to actually fight and I thought about it. I said, my mama would whoop my ass if she knew that I was over here fighting to actually go into into combat, right? Into war. Mm-hmm. What did um, uh
1: what did your S3 say when you got back?
0: <laughs> he he's an interesting guy, but he um uh, he told me he said and it surprised me, he said, I understand why you did what you did. He was like, next time, let's just figure it out. He's like, you're not going out all the time, damn it. We actually need your ass here. That's what he said. I was like, sir, I get it. Yeah, and he did. I was a G6 and a G1. I mean, there was clearly things I had to do strategically. Sure. I, sure. Said, I said, but sir, I'm the platoon leader. I got to be with my man. And he said, I get it. Let, let's just figure this out. And that was the first time that I heard he was soft. He was soft-spoken with me. He was kind, and he got it. Um, I will. I do have to also say... He was a guy who just was not wanting to go out the wire. He never tried to go out. And I get it. I mean, he had a big family. (laughs) I guess he was like, "Ah, I'm not risking that. And he was a hell of an S3 too. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to just foo-foo all over the guy. But, you know, in my mind, we're here for war. You're a field artillery officer. Get your ass out there. But, you know, it's, you know, everybody had different motivations. But I also say, Mark, I'm coming out of West Point um, post-Black uh, Hawk Down, and we're getting all of those warriors back talking to us about sacrifice, honor, integrity. Um, and I'm all I can think about is there's no way I'm letting my guys go out into danger without me. That's all I could hear and see. That's it.
1: What else comes of that first deployment of note? I mean, what, are where, we're, 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 we're yeah. you know, outside of missions and things of that nature, do you lose any folks within your particular platoon or in, within your company? I mean, uh, obviously again, handling those two roles is a massive assignment. So, uh, I know it's hard to encapsulate, you know, another 10 or 11 months in, in, in a very short time, but, uh, give it your best shot.
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, thank God, uh, I did not lose any of my platoon members. We, we lost, Several folks in our unit overall um which was which was super difficult uh for sure um and and I had to manage that piece i so that was of note i think also of note um uh my my unit received the the combat action badge while there because of an incident that directly impacted me uh i mean, obviously God wanted me to come back uh a, one, a, one, a 155 mortar round hit right outside of my trailer. So I wasn't even outside the wire and it was unexploded. Um, and I did it smush my trailer like a, a sardine can, throw me around. I was injured. Um, no, nope, no Purple Heart. Um, I found out that I was later banged up, tore ACL, MCL, a bunch of stuff. Um, that's a uh, concussion. So that's pre-TBI understanding that that stuff was kind of messing us up. Um, but I stuck it out because I had my men. I was like, no, nope, I'm not leaving. Wrap it up. Do what I got to do and yeah. we're going to stay. So that that also stuck out for me. Um, and and just it, it, I, I would also say, you know, w- without getting too graphic, you know, we worked with some really good Iraqi people there and, um, and a mother and daughter uh, were killed in a direct attack for working with us. And my guys were on site trying to save their lives. And so, you know, imagine, you know, these guys coming back in the talk and the uniform is covered, you know, with, with human remains and they're in shock. And so having to walk my guy, I'm 23 years old and I got the guys, 37, 40, 45 years old. And I'm trying to talk them into just going and taking off their uniform. Like, hey, hey, Big Sarge, I just need you to change. Like and he can't move um, because of what they just saw Uh, that for me, that also was um, a lesson in leadership, but also a lesson in empathy and the humanity of war. And um, and that those images really stay with me. Um, The loss stays with me packing up you know, a guy's belongings where his whole squad is just hovering, looking at me because I got to pack this up and I got to send it back to his mom. Um, That's, that really stays with me. The human side uh, of war, I think I, I, I sticks with me more than any other lesson that I probably learned.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um It's uh you know, those are, those are images that sort of burn themselves into your mind and they never go away. Um And that is the, that's the price of combat, uh, even if nothing happens to you personally. you know uh, We've said this a hundred times on the show. No matter what, when you return from combat, whoever you were before is now dead because you're somebody different. You'll never be the same again. The experience itself does not lend to you remaining the same person you were. Um, it is a near impossibility to not be affected by war at some even minute level. And obviously there are some major things that affect all of us and, and, and have affected you, but you know uh I'll ask just not to get too far ahead, but you know uh the response to all of that uh, in retrospect, was it pack it away? Don't talk about it. Just leave it where it is. We're going to continue on to the next mission. Or was this something that you were one of the few people who was willing to deal with on the spot and have some conversations about?
0: Oh, I was not one of the few people okay. at all. Uh Yeah. It's, it was like in my mind, it's I'm the leader. I need to pack this away and focus on my men. So, what's interesting about that question is I went to—I don't know if they called it behavioral health then. I think we might have called it the mental tent, which my best friend, who is a psych, psychologist, would be appalled to hear me say. But I think we called it the mental tent at the time. I went uh, after the incident that I just described around the the, the, the woman and 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 her child who was killed, I went and I was like, hey, I just want to put you on alert. Like, I got seven guys who just experienced this really terrible thing. I'm watching them, but I just want to let you know. And what's interesting about that is um, my my platoon sergeant um, heard that I did this, and he was mad as hell at me. I really? Mean, he called himself calling me on the carpet. You know, man, what do you think you're doing? These are my men and they are okay. So, my first sergeant was incredibly upset with me because I decided to notify mental health. And hey, I got some guys that might not be all right after experiencing something something traumatic. And I said to him, after him yelling at me incessantly, first of all, stand at attention when you're talking to an officer, just to reset. Um, And I could see his face like, you know, who the hell does she think she is, 23 year old. And then I said, second of all, as I softened my tone, I said, Top, you have blood all over your pants. And I don't even think you know it. And when he looked down and saw it, I could see him break. Um, And I said, hey, could you just do me a favor? Go clean yourself up. We'll talk about this later. All I did was say, that, hey, there was an incident and that some guys might want to come talk to you. Nobody's coming here. Nobody's making the unit stand down. I know we're okay. I just want to be sure that we are really okay. He was like, all right, got it, LT, and left. And that was also kind of, you know, a lesson in, hey, I'm responsible for this piece. But I did not go and talk to Behavioral Health about things that I experienced. I wasn't sleeping at all. My insomnia was ridiculous. I was having nightmares. I could literally I was literally reliving all of the scenes that I'd seen. If it was anything from packing up belongings to big mortar round in front of my trailer to the ting 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 of bullets, you know, kind of bouncing off of my vehicle as we did patrols. Like all of that I'm reliving in my mind. But in the daylight, I'm not I'm cool, calm, because I'm also the only woman in my unit. I can't show weakness or else, right? I'm putting this pressure on myself or else another woman officer will never be able to serve in this unit again if I show weakness because it'll prove exactly what a lot of folks are saying, right? And so I was really trying to go out of my way to be this hard ass that was probably unnecessary when as I said earlier, and I'd kind of done the things as an officer to like build the trust and to check those boxes. But in the back of my mind, I'm just like, nope, they can't see weakness in me at all.
1: So with that, you get back from this deployment, um, you know, you've got the respect and, and you know, the the sort of uh, leadership uh, of, your, of your men and your soldiers that are now, you know, willing and have gone to war with you. Um, Once you return, how much different are things back in a garrison environment, which you've never to this point really actually experienced with them?
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. I literally went from West Point to the schoolhouse to war. Um, I think maybe, and I'm just saying maybe, I would have had a better transition if I was not going right back to Fort Sill, which that meant at night in my brand new apartment, I'm living by myself at night, there are night fire exercises going on. So I'm laying in bed sleep, and all of a sudden, you boom. Your mind, your brain is not telling you that you're back home. Right. So I can't tell you how many nights I would hear that roll out of my bed under the bed, and I'm breathing hard, covering my head. It would take me 15, 20 minutes before I realized I was at home. I'm like, man, why am I feeling carpet? Like, and And I think probably after like the third or fourth month of that, I said, I am not okay. So I did what what any officer would do. I got dressed up like Inspector Gadget. I mean, literally, I put on a brown trench coat, a hat, some glasses, and went to behavioral health. I was literally the only black woman officer on Fort Sill at the time. Everyone knew what car drove. They knew what I looked like. So I called myself sneaking up to behavioral health um, and just like inspect a gadget, and I remember going in, and I mean I felt just you know I'm so insecure. I'm like paranoid. I'm looking around, and I they immediately get me in because I'm like within that six month window of returning home. And the 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 doctor at the time wasn't even making eye contact with me. You know he's asking me questions. He's writing things down. Immediately prescribes me Prozac. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, that's not what I came here for. I came here because I can't stop rolling under my bed when I hear loud booms. I can't stop seeing things that I saw. I need help processing that. Processing that. Like, I don't, I didn't come here to be drugged up. Because I'm also an officer man. I can't be, you know, so in my mind, I'm just like, no, it's going to make me drugged up. I'm not going to be effective. And, oh, by the way, right, I'm not one of those crazies, right? I'm not Suicidal. I, you know, so I had also kind of put it the spectrum, made the spectrum of needing help. I just need to talk to somebody or tell somebody this, and maybe they'll tell me to breathe and do yoga. I didn't come here for the medication, the mental medication. And oh, by the way, I was up to be an aide for my general. An aide? Can you imagine that? Like I'm a woman, aide in field artillery, and I can't have him knowing that I'm in, I'm, I'm now being seen by behavioral health. So I took the pills, walked out, literally threw them in the trash right outside the building, took the jacket off, went back to work. It would take me another five or six years before things got so bad um, where I knew, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta get help regardless of my status, my, my rank and my authority. I need to get help.
1: Did you have your second deployment before that, that happened?
0: Yep. It was my second deployment. Um, it, my second deployment, now I'm a senior captain and, you know, I don't have to go out the wire. Um, and I'm making these decisions in you know, coffee cup and hand on the hip and the top, right. That kind of life. Um, but I remember though, still, it was, it was one particular day I'm walking back from the hangar because at this point I'm in a combat aviation brigade. I'm walking back from the hangar. Um, Back to my trailer where I lived. And we, we get incoming. Some rockets start to come in on our location. And everybody instinctively, what do you do? You run to the bunker. I froze. And all of my soldiers and people who were with me said, I froze, they were yelling at me. And it was like, I was, it was almost like I had cement boots. Nothing they said, like I wasn't blinking. I wasn't moving. I wasn't respond, responding to sound. And finally, one of my guys literally kind of like, you know, put his shoulder in my stomach and just kind of threw me over and and ran to the bunker and just sat me down. And they said, I stayed like that for another 30 minutes. Like, it it wasn't like I was even there. And that's, you know, that's when I'm like, God, man, I remember the old guys talking about this stare, um, you know, and and how you can kind of go there in your mind and not see anything else. And I will and I always talk about that particular incident because it wasn't when I was outside of the wire getting shot at or doing something heroic. I'm literally just walking back to go sleep and we get attacked and I could not move. And I knew when I came back from that deployment that I needed I really needed help. I did.
1: Were you worried at that point in time after that whole thing had happened? I mean, obviously you finished out the deployment, right? You worried about your own ability to finish the deployment after that after that incident happened.
0: I was because my because some of my my soldiers had seen that, mm-hmm. and so in my mind I'm thinking uh, they probably lost confidence in me now in my ability to make decisions. So I will say that that did I think that hurt my confidence as a leader for the remainder of that deployment. I'm sure it did. I get even as I talk to you about it, I'm thinking I'm thinking about it how. I started deferring more to my senior NCO, my senior enlisted, um, guide for decisions. You know, he's looking at me like, "Man, what are you talking about? You do this in your sleep? Yeah, you know what the right thing to do." I'm like, "Yeah, but I just want to check." You know, we got folks out there, lives depending on us. It did impact my confidence because I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to process that that hacked. i mean i i didn't feel bad i felt great i mean i think i was going to get a cup of coffee too i was like let me put my stuff down and i'm gonna go to green bean get a coffee you know try to find some sense of normalcy in war um and here i am just walking and boom and i'm like man i couldn't even control my own body um and so i i definitely think that that preyed on my What I thought was my leadership competence and ability—I thought I was a damn good leader um, up until that point—and and and that and that really broke me down a little bit.
1: How much uh, after this deployment are you still having the whole? I mean, obviously, you're cognizant that things aren't right, but um, you're still being weighed down. And I don't know if "weighed down" is a fair term, but being weighed down by being black, being female, being in combat arms and all this, and trying to kind of uphold this invisible standard for others, especially other black females who would follow behind you. Um, You you have this extra added thing that you're, you're carrying along with it. How much was that ultimately a roadblock for you ultimately getting help?
0: It was the roadblock. I I think your question is is so insightful Uh, and it's only now post- Army, post-military, that I can say that with confidence and certainty, that that was the roadblock for me. It's show no weakness, uh, because there are women and Black officers coming behind me, Black women officers coming behind me, and if I make one mistake, that's going that might take away an opportunity, whether that was true or not that may take away an opportunity for some other badass who's coming behind me. I mean, at this point, right, in the military, we got black women, rangers, and I mean, you know, officers out the wazoo, generals out, the, I mean, just just killing the game, right? But in my mind, if I flub this up, there all these, these men, these white men in power who will one day make the decision whether or not this Black woman gets an opportunity, gets a shot at this job, or whether or not she gets promoted, or whether or not she gets double below the zone for promotion or, right. you know, he's going to think, no, because that one LT or that captain or that major that I served with back in 09, back in 04, she didn't cut it. And what makes this one different, right? So I think it was always this unnecessary undue pressure. I mean, and I'm telling you, whenever I would get my evaluations back and I would see like top block or signal officer I've ever served with would go to war in it. I'm seeing these things. I'm reading like, who is this? Who are they talking about? It's me. But I couldn't see it. Like, cause I was so hard on myself the entire time. I couldn't even see the good that I was doing because of the pressure that I placed on myself. And 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 to be honest, and this is not, this is definitely not a hit any of the black male officers that i served with or served under but um all of my mentors all of the men who took me under their wing white men who are just like you know what i think you're a damn good officer i am not gonna allow you to get in the way of you and i've i heard that at least two or three times um and they were typically like special forces rangers guy ranger guys. so i got a special place in my heart for. Well, those guys um, who kind of took me under their wings and 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 made me, I think, the leader who I am today.
1: So, where are you, and what is the ultimate catalyst for you going to get the help that you need?
0: Yeah, I think the ultimate the ultimate catalyst was, um, you know, I was nearing the end of my career, uh, and I knew this because my injuries were catching up with me surgeries were piling up. And even though I was becoming more senior, in my opinion, it was becoming more hard. It was becoming harder to perform, I think. And, and it was mainly, mainly physically. I would, you know, you come from a West point environment. It's just like, now you got to leave from the front in every way. Um, and I, and it was really starting to get to me that I couldn't, I got my body physically couldn't do so. Right. And, um, I wound up getting sent to a wounded warrior battalion at Fort Benning, Georgia. So, it's a worst place to send a type a hard on yourself person anyway. So now I'm surrounded by these, like these heroes, um, at Fort Benning as I'm attempting to heal and figure out if the army is going to retire me or allow me to rehab and keep me in. And it was during that time that I wound up, um, taking guardianship of my goddaughter. And she was, Uh, six years old at the time. And so I got this tiny human being who just wants to eat cereal and watch cartoons and play with me all day. And here I am struggling with whether or not I even want to live. Because my sense of purpose was tied um, not only to being an army officer, but just to this sense of uh, sacrifice and wanting my life to be worth something because all the folks that I lost, I didn't want their sacrifice to be in vain. So I was really struggling with just even living uh and I did have su- suicidal ideations and I remember uh this is the first time I've ever told this story out loud I remember um one particular night I would written out kind of my goodbye letter and I'd taken all the medicine and pills that they had given me and I kind of combined them and you know put the pills like on a napkin on my bedside and I put my baby girl to bed, you know, I kissed her and um, go in the bedroom. And I'm in the, I'm in my bed sobbing because the letter's right there and the pills are right there. And I'm like, this is it. Like she is better off because I, I mean, I was I felt angry a lot of times. I'm apologizing to the seven year old for my outburst. She doesn't deserve this, this treatment. And I'm thinking my mother's worried about me all the time. She doesn't deserve that. My best friends, I'm like, surely the world would be better without me. And I'm laying in, I'm getting, I'm literally getting ready to grab the pills, and just start taking them. And my goddaughter, um, for the first time, she's never done this before because she loved her own bed and her own room. She comes into my room. It's like maybe 1130 midnight. She's sleepy. So she has her, her stuffed animal with her. And she climbs into my bed and she just lays on my chest. She gives me a kiss. Good night, Manny. That was my nickname. Good night, Manny. And I held her and I sobbed silently because she doesn't know. This makes me emotional. She doesn't know to this day that she saved my life. And I said that I would, she's 18 now. And I said that I would tell this story to her soon. Um, I've never told her the story, but it was like after that night, is I said, Yeah, Mary that you, you got to go talk to somebody and i i went on base the next day went to behavioral health and i said hey i'm thinking about hurting myself um and uh, i'm responsible for a tiny human being who deserves a really great life can you help me and that that was the start of my journey
1: well thank you for sharing that that's uh, yeah. that's incredible and god bless your goddaughter for saving your life yeah. and uh, certainly uh, she 's the guardian angel you never knew you needed or or, or yes. wanted and, and uh we we 're all glad that you're you're still here because of her so uh I hope okay. you do Thank share you. that story with her. I hope she knows how precious it is and uh you know that those those critical moments are uh and thankfully it wasn 't a delay right because we 've heard yeah. too many stories where it just delays the inevitable thankfully yeah. it was it was enough for you to be uh to have the wherewithal to to walk in and go get help the very next moment that that was available because a lot of times again many, many people have chosen to put that child back to bed and continue on the path yeah. of, of what we, you know, you could say is least resistance, which is checking out and saying, I'll see you later. Um, but you know, God bless you. God bless her. And thank you for still being here. And thank you for having the strength and the courage, uh, to fight on and, and still be part of this because your story is more valuable with you alive than it would be if you were ever gone. Uh, and the thank fact you. that you're here thank to tell it, uh, you're, the fact that you're here to tell it, uh, says, says the world about you. Um, so as you start this story, this journey um, and you go to behavioral health, what do you, what do you start to recognize about all of this that you went through? Like as you start digging into the boxes of everything that you packed away, what are you starting to pull out that you didn't realize was there?
0: Yeah. You know, and I I love that question so much because the first thing I recognized was I had a lot of insecurity around my service, um, especially as it pertained to more specifically being a woman than necessarily my race. Um, and I think it's because I started out that journey in combat arms with people kind of, you know, wondering, uh, is she, is she ready? Should she be here? I've never served with a woman. And, and the reason I say that is because, man, I, I want to believe that this gentleman has saved lives. I do. But when I sat down for my first appointment with him, the first thing he asked me is, you're a woman. Why would you want to be in the military? And I'm thinking to myself, why are you working here on Fort Benning? Like, I don't understand. Um, and, and, and he made me so angry it stunned me into silence but I gotta tell you Mark I literally I I, I tried to swipe everything off his desk like I said nothing back to him I just I stood up swipe got my stuff and I walked out like it wasn't even a yelling match I know I was thinking to myself, he is going to call security I'm not making it out of this building um my and then so then I said okay maybe it was I know it's, it's, people still learning about women in combat. People are still trying to get over their old stuff. I'm not mad. I've been breaking barriers since I came into this thing. Who cares? I'll just find somebody else. So then I requested a woman. This woman then said next, Mary, you know, I really respect people who serve in the military. I just, women, I just don't think women should go to war. I mean, I mean these are like my first two experiences. So I was like, you know what? like I'm being real frank I see why people are just like eff it and I'm just gonna do what I'm gonna do anyway you know what I mean because I'm just like no one no one gets it no one cares and I, what I then began to do is I think um I tried to find peace or make sense of things in my faith community um I really just dive deep into the church um I am a an ordained minister I don't serve in that capacity right now Um, but at the time it was like all right at least I'm finding some type of comfort because that's what was happening my mind was just so busy I couldn't find I couldn't make it stop thinking about the things that I experienced and I seen and I think church and singing and serving folks and teaching bible study gave me a release for a while and I will also say um, the particular churches that I was a part of, because this is not every church, um, did not support therapy. And so I was being taught that, you know, you need to believe God for your healing. And, and if, if you are dealing with nightmares and suicidal ideations, it's because you're not praying hard enough. So now I got folks who are working to support the army that I love, who are telling me that as a woman that I should not have even served, and then I got my church um, that represents the God that I love telling me that, you know what, you're just not praying hard enough. That's why you're having all these problems. So it caused like this big like amalgamation of confusion. It was, It's was like, what do I do um, to even deal with any of this? And I'll tell you, I it, it kind of sent me into deep depression. I, I begin to isolate as a way to cope right No one has to know that I'm having these problems if I'm not talking to you as much or being around you as much. Um, I did read a lot. I tried to like leader develop myself. I tried to Tony Robbins myself into uh, you know out of depression and a lot of motivational speaking but at the at the end of the day I was still not dealing with you know kind of my core issues, which is Mary, you know, it's your fault that you went through all of that because you didn't have to go to West Point. Um, you didn't have to go to war. You could have walked out of West Point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's your fault, Mary, you're a woman. You didn't have any experience um, in those units that you were in. Maybe it's your fault that some of those men didn't make it back home to their families. Maybe they're right. What they say about you, you know? And so deal. I didn't realize that I was dealing with all of that um, until a good friend of mine was like, Mary, you know what? You can request the type of psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor that you work with. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, if you want a woman, a black woman, a combat veteran, or somebody who's worked with loss, you can. And that changed the entire game for me, because that's exactly what I did. And I've been working with that ever since. And I think organizations like Headstrong, which I'll tell you, I, ha- I talked to a Headstrong therapist every Friday at 1 p.m religiously um, because of that. And this is what, 10 years after I've gotten out of the military. Um, But as you talked earlier, you spoke about earlier, these are things that are burned into your brain, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, and again, it's, it's, it's interesting because everybody's struggle. Nobody, nobody takes the same path with this whole thing, right? Like sure people could be on similar paths, but not everybody you know, goes through it and responds to it the same way. So it's different for everybody and, and whatever stimuli you needed to be able to connect with somebody is particular to you. I I think it's, it's, you know, that, that part is unique, but you know uh, when you finally find that spot, it, it gets back to that, that sort of sweet spot of comfort where I'm relating to somebody finally, and somebody is relating to me. And that's when the kind of real dialogue begins to flow, right? Like that's where it really starts to, I'm starting to feel like I'm, I'm actually making progress with my issues.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I, and I think that's what allowed me to be able to begin to talk through all of that, you know, I, is first of all, someone made me feel like, um, all of the things that I was feeling was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and normal in the sense of war is not normal. I think that's probably what changed my mind about how to go about dealing with my challenges mental health-wise. I had a, a therapist who said to me, you know what, Mary? She said, while war may be necessary and noble, it is not normal for human beings to desire to end each other's life, no matter what the purpose is. I don't know why that helped me the way it did, because I think I thought that, The further I got away from the military, like war, the actual war. So even when I was in Garrison, I think not being actively in war, right? On a mission, trying to help somebody, save somebody, make somebody's life better, make a country or a place, a better place to live for the people there. I found it hard, harder and harder to reconcile the posture, the mental posture I had to take. Where if I... Locked and loaded, I got in my truck and I went outside the wire. I was prepared to end someone's life. It was hard for me to reconcile that now out of uniform, that I had to have that posture. Or I was, and yeah, I know you'll hear my heart when I say this, I'm, I'm callously sitting behind a screen, right? A Blue Force tracker, I'm looking at, you know, something and I'm going, yes, that's the target. Yep, we're prepared. We got comms, go. Like you know, and I'm making a decision that may or may not end lives. And I think the further and further away I got from being in the moment of the mission, I'm just like, I felt like a monster in a lot of ways. And I'm just like, but I'm a good person. I know the missions were righteous. I I know that my guys were were not, you know, callous murderers. But it just it really it, it got harder and harder for me to reconcile that. And that was also sinking, making me sink deeper. Right. And I think, you know, having professionals who understood the psychology of war and how to help me navigate that. Um, one of the best tools that I was given some years ago was this. There are two times of the year, um, spring, m- early to mid-March, and right about now, kind of this uh, mid to late October that aligned with two particular surges um, that we had in Iraq in my first deployment. Those surges, we lost a lot of folks um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of tragic things happened. I I stayed awake a lot. It was a lot of chaos, all the things. And I, I just remember those times. It took me years to realize why I was having these incredibly horrible bouts of insomnia around the same time. And I had a therapist that said, Mary, mark the days on the calendar when this happened. And I noticed I would go for three, four days straight, five days straight, barely sleeping. Couldn't, couldn't tell you why. I'm exhausted. right? And of course, my I'm angry, I'm, all the things. And it's probably about the second or third year, I was like, that's it. It was really horrible times for me when I was deployed. And that's why I'm able to now tell my family family members or friends when this is coming up. I was like, ah, I feel it coming. Hey, my mood gets whatever. Or hey, I'm going to be taking some sleeping pills. I'm going to bed at eight uh, so I can wake up and be effective. But that really, really helps because I may never get over that. that. I may have deal with that until the day that I die, but I'm able to manage it now. And I feel more normal now than I ever have because I can manage that, but I can also communicate it to the people I love.
1: Yeah, and it's, look, the the self-doubt is, is probably one of the toughest hurdles to clear, where you have to do the, like you said before, wait, I'm a good person, right? I think I'm a good person, but am I a good person? And you start to get in this vicious cycle of, well, I want to be a good person, but right now I'm not, but I am, and I don't know how to be. And, you know, it, that part um, can become consuming, and it certainly can – overtaking, you could be on the wrong side of it, which leads to many a bad thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, that part I think is one of the toughest ones to, that, that we deal with in overcoming all this because everything that you thought that you did right, now you're questioning because it led you to the spot where you're in, right? Yeah, um, Yeah. It, it led you to being in this position. Sure, I made the right decision in battle, but, okay, bad things still happened, and guess what, you know? sure, I did the right thing in protecting all my soldiers, but, you know, I still have all these things from it, so did I really do it right? You know, I mean, you start to try to find minutia and, and yeah. try to find ways that you were wrong to validate your thinking that you're not as good of a person as you think you are. So I think it's worthy that you acknowledge that because I think that part is really, really important. Um, and, and and getting that back is never easy. Um, right. And the problem is is we we can only get it back out of uniform but yet we can't dissociate how to do that because the only Mm -hmm. way to atone for things that happen in uniform is to do it in uniform and for Mm -hmm. those people who have left the service they don't get another crack at it right you can kick ass in your civilian job all the way and do everything right that doesn't make up for anything that went on on the battlefield because those people weren't there with you you're not doing it with them and they aren't the ones bearing the brunt or don't have to bear the brunt of what had gone on in that situation so there's this mental disconnection about what really, or or how you can really make up for the things that you felt that you got wrong um, yeah. because we can't yeah. hit a rewind button, but yeah. that's the <laughs> challenge. That is the, that is the, so, you know, and again, we'll get into your work now, but all the work you're doing now more than makes up for anything that you might have. And I'm not saying you did do anything wrong, but <clears throat> excuse me, anything you might've done wrong because you're paying it forward. You're, you're helping others get to the steps that took you so long to get, to where they needed to go. But still, we have a hard time bridging that gap between those moments and the current moments you're in.
0: Yeah. I I, I used to have a mentor uh, who would say, (laughs) who would say um, the reason why he does so much good in his later years is because he can't remember his 20s or 30s. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I kind of adopted that a little bit. And it was just like, um, you know, once I was medically retired, you know, I was ultimately, you know, deemed unfit to commit to uh, continue my service in the Army, which I appealed uh, because, again, my entire identity was, right. was wrapped up, intertwined with me being a West Point graduate, with, with me losing people that I love classmates and kind of what I thought was my duty to the country. And, and so I get out and I'm thinking, you know, I'll do the, the blueprint, the, the blueprint, which is go to a big B school and, and then go work for some huge um, consulting firm or bank or something like that. And, you know, make six figures and, 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 and do that thing. And, I could not find any sense of purpose in even that train of thought. Not I tried. I was like, yeah, I just try to, you know, business school and do it. It's like, oh, but what for? All they're trying to do is make money. I mean, you know, high side is 2020, 20, right? Cause I really like money now. But <laughs> but it was just like you coming off of two de- two deployments, all you know, just mission, 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 because all I was doing was going and then coming back and preparing and then going, you know. And so I think once I got out, it was like, nope, I got to keep whatever this do-gooder thing is in me, I got to keep doing. And to your earlier point, I think a little bit was, a lot of bit of it was trying to atone or, and I kept saying it to myself, Mary, do something that makes the people you've lost, that their lives weren't given or taken in vain. And I kept saying that. I like, I really have lived my life like that. And I think I'm now kind of transitioning to this point where it's like, man, it's okay right. to figure out what your own dreams or goals or purposes are. Now, there's still around serving people, but I got to tell you, I made a lot of my earlier choices about, you know, continuing my, you know, to work for the Department of Defense or, you know, working in federal government or even nonprofit because, I wanted to make their lives, their sacrifice worth it. Um, and that, that's come out. Th- that has come out of therapy as well, <laughs> that, that I was living my life for other people, for sure.
1: Well, what you're doing now, uh, again, appointed by president Biden to lead AmeriCorps, mm-hmm. uh, which has a commitment to support wounded warrior, veteran military family communities. Uh, I am always curious um, how you get politically appointed to anything. Uh, I've, Live by the maxim, and I will probably have this on my t- etched on my tombstone, quote, I need better friends uh, because <laughs> I don't have friends who could ever get me politically appointed to anything. Um,
0: but that said,
1: uh, you have better friends than I do, apparently. So how do you end up being appointed by President Biden?
0: I do have some pretty good friends, but... Uh, now can you send them my didn't...
1: way, please? Because I'm just I'm just here talking for a living and nobody's listening to a damn thing I say.
0: Oh, no, Lots of people are listening. And now my friends are your friends, Mark. I good. think, uh, you know, I, again, once I came out of the service, it was like, okay, Mary, do the, the most good and the best good that you can for as long as you can. And, and so I really threw myself... Into, I would say, particularly nonprofit work. So I first began working on ending homelessness in, in Brooklyn, New York, and working on poverty, right? So I was the upstream person, right? How do you end homelessness or prevent homelessness? Well, you go upstream and you identify, you address the issues that cause homelessness. So unemployment, um, drug addiction, all those things. I worked on it in this amazing community in Brooklyn called Brownsville, Brooklyn. And, the, and those folks will have forever have my heart and soul, they're my family. But I treated that role like I was a tactical officer in Iraq. If you go in that community center right now, you'll see, I literally set up a talk. I had screens up. I made a, one of the walls, a big map. I would have, I had the core values and the mission on the wall and people would, I would like quiz my staff, like, what's the stats today? Like how many people are unemployed? What are we doing today? I mean, I literally treated it like it was a mission. I actually got tapped by South by Southwest to talk about how I was addressing solving the the, the issue of poverty. But what I saw was that I could apply everything that I learned, the hard lessons that I learned, the best practices to, to the work to make my communities better. And that work beget get other opportunities, um, I was a chief operations officer for a city agency um, down in Jacksonville, Florida, where we had to support children's programs. So now it's like, oh, I got 10,000 kids, $75 million. How do I get into the best programs? Again, I create and made it like a mission again. And so I got to see that everything that I thought made me the leader that I was, I didn't have to throw away. And I could actually apply it to making the country that I loved and sacrificed for better. Right. And then I got to do it for the mission continues, which um, is an incredible post911 organization devoted to doing what? working in local communities. So it was like the intersection of everything that I was, everything that I am. And I think from a lot of all that kind of com- com- combination of all of that work, um, the word got around in the in the transitioning administration. Um, that, yeah, you got this veteran out here that also does this community work, national service. And so I got recruited as a combat veteran um, to be an, an advisor to the president and different agencies around how do you best support this this particular community. But I think my strong suit was, and this is what I always demand, that you don't treat us, veterans, those who have served, those who are in uniform, um, like we have a problem that you need to solve. We are warriors. We are leaders. We still have lots to offer our country. Um, Give us what we have earned and do not take pity for us. But understand that we got a lot left to give. And if you align us in the right spaces and places, we can continue to help make this country a better place. So that's the advocacy that I do every single day.
1: Also something that's never happened to me. I've never been recruited for anything. That's like pick last and (laughs) (laughs) dodgeball. You know, never been recruited, don't have good friends. I mean, I, you know, I, I, these are phenomenons that I have yet to experience, and I'm I'm over 40, so I better start getting moving uh, at some point in time <laughs> in my life if I want something good to happen. So, yeah, uh, great for you. I mean, that's –
0: Thank you. <laughs> I mean, listen,
1: it just speaks to – and I, I think, Mary, you know, it, it, that same second lieutenant who sat in a tank during, you know, uh, during branch day at West Point – who said this is what I wanted to do, and then was told you couldn't? Um, and that same, you know, uh, second lieutenant who got commissioned and was told that they couldn't go outside the wire, and that same, you know, individual who had all these things standing in front of her. Um, throughout your entire career, you've just put together a very simple, straightforward plan, put your head down, and executed it, uh, hmm. and it's rewarded you time and time again. Um, and even in your journey, uh, on your mental health journey to getting better and, and feeling better, it was a simple plan. Uh, now mm. granted, you know, it took a, a couple of steps to get there and a couple of trials by error and, and things of that nature, but the plan was always the same, get the help that I need. Uh, mm. and, and you were relentless in doing so. And, and this has catapulted you into being, you know, a young girl who, uh, wasn't going to be able to go to college and then was going to go to Spelman college and, you know, be set on this path. Um, and now, now you have a much wider aperture of what you can affect, uh, than possibly you ever imagined. I mean, is that fair to say?
0: It's very fair to say. And I, and thank you for how you reframed that whole thing. Uh, cause I didn't, I don't, I have never looked at it like that. Um, well, we never I listen think... to
1: our own story, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. But I was like, Oh man, who is he talking about? I found amazing. Um, but I, so I appreciate how you reframe that. I think you know, part of what makes that mental health piece so pivotal for me is I think that was the first time I ever thought about not coming up with a plan and putting my head down and just getting it done. She's like, oh, the plan is to just stop planning. And um, and so you're right, I'm really grateful for my goddaughter, who's my angel. Um, but you're right. It's almost like if you set me and it's like, okay, got it. Go to this therapist and not working. Keep moving. You know, got this problem, no resources. So what make it happen. You're right. That has always been a lot of my, my mentality. Oh, don't think I can get it done because I got ovaries. Okay. I'll show you how much people with ovaries can get done. Uh, you know, so I, I, I've never looked at it like that. And I, I really appreciate you reframing it like that. <laughs>
1: Uh, speaking of ovaries, uh, no, we're not going down that road, but I, what I did want to ask you is, you know, go back, um, to sitting in that classroom and that silver haired, you know, steel, blue eyed white, uh, you know, man officer walks in, uh, and, and has a pitch and a spiel, um, to young black females about what their future should be. Um, you are now the grizzled veteran, uh, in that space you're walking back into a classroom to speak with young black females about their future. What are you saying?
0: Oh my goodness. Um, and I've had the opportunity to do that, um, over the years. Matter of fact, I used to go back to my high school when I came home while I was a cadet at West Point, And even when I was in the military, um, because I, one, I think it's important that you see what you could be. Yes. Um, and, and so that's super important for me. I think what I would say to them now is this, especially if they are contemplating service in the military, one, um, I would say that it is hard, emotionally and mentally, to contemplate leaving your home, period. If it's to go to college, Um, if it's to choose a career or a path that no one else in your family has chosen because you're choosing to break the mold. Um, And that takes courage and it takes confidence and it takes going into the unknown, not knowing what awaits you. Um, It takes uh, grit because you're going to come up against obstacles. Mm -hmm. But especially if you're going into the military, you have this knowledge that you will be fighting for and and fighting uh, and defending a country that is not always fought for you. So how do you reconcile that? How I've always reconciled it is uh, one of the most beautiful pieces of our Constitution talks about um, a more perfect union. Mm -hmm. And when you put on a uniform, you're not fighting necessarily for what this country is, but what it could be. And so if you choose to put that uniform on and serve in this country, please understand that not only are you walking in the footsteps of those giants who've come before you, but now you're blazing a new trail that will help make this country a better place for you to live and your kids to live. And that takes courage. That takes bravery. That takes doing something that no one else in your family has ever done, and it is worth it because it makes you a different person. It makes you a different woman and it makes you a better leader. And so that's what I try to instill because there is no sense in beating around the bush and not calling out the elephant in the room, if you will, which is um, the experience for Black Americans in this country is different. And, um, but I do believe that it is worth it only because I know that no other woman will ever have that experience that I had when I first went into those field artillery units, because I've been there before, they, they're they used to it now. They don't have to worry, wonder where I'm going to, whether she's going to use the bathroom or if she can get the job done. Because there are women who are field artillery rangers and sappers serving in our country, our country's greatest army every single day. And no one's blinking an eye. And I'd like to believe that I was a part of that story. I'm not sure, but I'd like to believe that I was a part of that story. So I just say to them, give it a shot. All right. (laughs) Give it a shot.
1: No one ever knows they're blazing a trail until it's already done. So I think you qualify uh, for that, to say the least. Uh, Listen, if you guys want to go volunteer with AmeriCorps, you can do so. AmeriCorps.gov. There are ways to get in touch with whatever AmeriCorps is doing locally in your area. Uh, Obviously, you know, Mary, there's a there's a ton of work to do. And I think AmeriCorps Mm -hmm. and and President Biden have found the right person because there's a plan somewhere and it's being executed on a daily basis it's just uh, been been the the hallmark of your entire career both in and out of uniform so uh it was a pleasure to get to talk with you at the falcons game i'm glad they won for you uh i, yes. I didn't have a dog <laughs> in the fight i didn't care i was just there for the for the for the for the shrimp and the sushi and all the fine food and, and yes. delectable <laughs> beverages um if you if you full disclosure you put free food out you'll always get me to show up you know <laughs> I'm I'm like that dog you know if you just put a bowl of food out I'll be there so uh there there is that but no, I, I mean again it's and it speaks volumes um when gentlemen like uh Garrett Cathcart and Joe Quinn uh are in your corner um yeah. because of of the the individuals that they are the service members that they were uh and what they stand for uh and you you have obviously requited yourself as every bit of the outstanding service member that anybody is, regardless of sex, race, creed, whatever it may be. Uh, you, you've proven yourself to be a soldier time and time again first, uh, but at the same time never losing that core of who you are. Uh, and being from Atlanta and a black female and growing up in that environment uh, is never going to be far from who you are, and it shouldn't be. It's part of what made you strong. It's part of what made you resilient. It's part of what made you tough. And, and those are all redeeming qualities that we want all of our soldiers to have. So those Absolutely. are things I think that, that – um, your background has, has imparted on everybody around you. So it, it again, it's been great to get to know you. I'd loved hearing your story. I you had so many wonderful things to share. Um, and, and I hope we can continue this since we are both Atlantans now, I'm a de yes. facto Atlantin. let's, uh, <laughs> let's certainly stay in touch and, 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 keep in touch and, um, you know, go to green beans or the de facto green beans here <laughs> in the United States and, and grab a coffee together sometime soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me and thank you for what you continue to do for our country.
1: Uh, Mary Tobin, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
0: Absolutely. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.